We are going through uh, different psalms uh, throughout this summer. So this morning we're in Psalm 51. Conrad was kind enough to read the first half of the psalm. We'll read the rest of it as we get through it this morning. So we're going to be in Psalm 51. If you want to turn there in your copy of Scripture, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, a Bible, you are welcome to grab one from underneath the chairs around you. And uh, you're welcome to keep that. And I don't mention that all the time. You're welcome to keep that Bible. Or if you know somebody who needs a Bible, you can take that and... Uh, provide that to them. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump into the psalm. God, we are grateful for your word, and our prayer is this morning as we think about your word, that your Holy Spirit would use it to um, move in our hearts. Draw us, Lord, to repentance, to trust you more, uh, to see more of what you are like, to uh, stop believing that which is not true about you, either from our own imagination or from the lies of the enemy. Our prayer, God, is today that we would know you more deeply, that we would love you greater, and that we would be more like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 51, of course, is a psalm of confession, repentance, and it's famous psalm. As you look at the beginning of the psalm, it's got a note to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is a confession psalm that David wrote after he had been confronted with the reality of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, and not only that, but attempting to cover that adulterous affair by having her husband Uriah murdered. And this psalm is how he uh, let us know what it means to seek the Lord for forgiveness. And the title of the message today, I hope we can address it through looking at this psalm, is trying to answer this question, how could God forgive me? How could God forgive me? David's sin was great. We would imagine uh, having an adulterous affair with somebody and then seeking to cover it up uh, by murdering uh, another individual. It seems like kind of a big deal uh, to me, I think, for from most people, and, and all of us, I think, it's universally true, there are things in our life that we look back on, that we look back on them with some level of regret, some level of, I wish that wasn't a part of my history, and certainly hope it's not a part of my future. And the question is, uh, Seth sort of alluded to it when referencing that element of that, that song we were singing, saying, where do we go for comfort? And the question is, what do we do when we're dealing with regret? How do we, do we deal with our regret? Let me float out a couple of ideas to you of how we often deal with regret. One way to deal with regret, when there's something in your life that you wish you hadn't done, thought, said, saved up for, scheduled, whatever it might have been, is one thing you might do to deal with that regret is compare yourself with someone else who has done something much, much worse is certainly you have done something terrible, but you look at your brother-in-law, and you're like, you know what? I'm not so bad. I mean, look at this Yahoo. He doesn't seem bothered. He's not filled with regret. So that's one of the ways we, we do this. And I call this the Hitler defense of getting into heaven. And right away, you're like, what? He's like, well, I'm not, I should get into heaven because I'm not Hitler. Boy, you're setting your standards pretty high there. Anybody who's not Hitler gets into heaven. And that's one of the ways we deal with regret, is we compare ourselves with others who have done things worse, and so therefore we say, I don't have to feel bad about it because other people are doing things worse. 
Another way that we deal with regret is we look around at others and say, well, everybody's doing this very same thing. This is a, a universal thing, and so I don't have to feel bad about it because there's lots of people that I look up to and I respect, people that I would normally go to for advice. They're doing the same thing, or I see how the world is operating, or I look at what's going on in media, whether it be movies, television shows, or social media, and I say, well, here's what everybody else is doing, so I'm not doing anything wrong. Everybody does this, so therefore... When I do it, even though in my mind I recognize it's probably not something I should do or think, I shouldn't have regret because there are other people who are doing it. Another way we deal with regret is we might suggest, hey, I had no choice. I had no choice. I was in a pickle and there was nothing I could do. I, I, I owed too much on my taxes in my business and so I had to sort of get a little bit creative with how I approached our accounting to reduce our tax liability, or I really needed this big new account, and I knew our bid was going to come in too high, so I, I cut a few corners landing the bid, and I'm just going to make up for it and change orders. Because once I land the bid, they're not going to fire me, even though I know I can't do the project for that bid. So I'm just, and listen, I have to do it. If I don't, if I don't get the business, or if I don't reduce my tax liability, or if I don't I don't have any choice. And so we deal with regret because sometimes we get into a spot where we have to do something we know is wrong. And so we say, well, I had to. I had no choice. And that's one of the ways we deal with regret. Last one. And some of you, are, I notice you're taking copious notes on these. These aren't the message. These are the, anyway, we'll get to it. The last one is we might suggest God's expectations are unreasonable. Is, is something is true in my life, and you know what? You know what it really comes down to? God is expecting too much of me. God is expecting too much of me as a single person to refrain from sexual expression until I get married. That's expecting a little bit too much of me. Or for married couples, God is expecting a little bit too much of me to be faithful and true sexually and relationally to one person for the entirety of our lives. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, let's be honest, that's, those expectations are a little bit out of line, aren't they? I mean, that, that's a lot to ask. That's a heavy lift. And so when we look at what God's expectations, I shouldn't feel regret. God's expectations are too high. So do you know what? God is asking me to shoot for the sun and maybe I hit the moon. But, but certainly nobody is going to be able to live up to his expectations. See, what these are all doing is they're attempting to deal with our regret. Here's the problem. When we don't get to the root of what is filling our lives with regret and shame, we never actually deal with it. And what David is going to show us is to how to plumb the depths of what's going on in the human heart when we have things in our past and our present that we wish weren't there and how to, how to address them in a way that's comprehensive because it's connected with our relationship with the Lord. And this is what his psalm does for us. How could God forgive me. The first six verses Conrad read for us. How could God forgive me? Number one, because of the power of his unfailing love. Look at verse one. Let me read it again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David comes right out of the gates and he wants to seek 
the Lord's forgiveness and he appeals to God based on what he knows about God's nature and that is his, his unfailing love. I want to point out to you something David didn't do. David did not negotiate with God in regard to his shame and his sin and his disobedience. This is often how we interact with God as we seek to interact with God through negotiation. We're going to look for common ground with God. God, you and I both know that I want to live for you and that we love one another and, and that I really blew it. And, and, but God, really, I mean, really, yes, I did something bad over here, but look at all of the good things I do. So now we're negotiating with God. And God, you know I'm a weak person. I'm never going to be able to always say no to these things. So here's what we're going to do, God. I've got a plan. You give me this, and I promise to attend church every week. So some of you are here in church today. Don't look around. <laughs> Just to pay for the sin you've got on your calendar this coming Wednesday. Yeah, you, no, nobody would do that. Oh, yeah. Other things. And, and some of you are saying, boy, going to church every week, that seems like an overpayment for the sin I have planned. I'm going to go to church twice a month. And, and, Lord, and so we negotiate with, we negotiate with God. And I'm going to donate to this charity. I'm not going to say uh, these particular bad words so I can save up for this one really bad one. And I'm only going to say it every so often, God. So we negotiate with God, and David does no negotiation. In fact, God doesn't negotiate about our sin and about forgiveness. God is not going to negotiate. What David is doing is he knows something about what God is like, and David, in seeking reconciliation with God, David, in seeking forgiveness, appeals to what he knows God is like. He appeals to God's very nature, that it is because God is a loving God. In fact, the word there, look at the, uh, where is it? It's the middle of verse 1. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. It's not just love. It's what kind of love? Steadfast love. Let's think through the history a little bit. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're not going to turn there. David says, you know what? I really want to be able to build a temple for the Lord. Nathan the prophet then comes to David and says, hey, uh, I talked to God about your idea of building the temple for the Lord. You don't get to. Your son is going to build the temple for you. You don't get to build the temple. But God says this to you, David. I will establish your house forever, and you will never fail to have a son sitting on your throne. Your son's rule will last forever. So David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. And he says, your son will sit on your throne forever and, and your son will build a temple for me. Now, we know, of course, this, the temple was built by King Solomon, but the son that will sit on David's throne forever is Jesus. So David comes to God and says, I want to build you a house. And God says to David, no, I want to build you a house. And your house is better than the one you had planned for me. Then in 2 Samuel 8, 2 Samuel 9, 2 Samuel 10, David has victory over the Philistines. David has victory over the Amalekites and the Ammonites and the Stalactites, their group. We know who all these people are. Some, of, some people weren't here last week. I wanted to use that joke again. Not only that, in the midst of all these great victories, he shows love and devotion to his enemy, King Saul, by providing a home for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. 
So 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a house. God says no. God establishes his house. God gives him victory. God gives him generosity. God gives him power. 2 Samuel 11, what does he do? Sleep with Bathsheba. Isn't that incredible? See, we all think this happened because things were going bad. Why did David stay home from the battle that day? Because God had been so good. See, David's regret wasn't just Bathsheba, certainly his Adulterous affair was terrible. David's regret wasn't merely that he had had his, one of his mighty men, one of his 30 mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, murdered at the hand of Joab for Joab murdering somebody. That's Monday. But for David, that's a big deal. Not only that, he did all of this at the end of God's great blessing. God blessed him and blessed him and blessed him. And how did he thank the Lord? He sinned against him in, in terrible ways. David's fail, David had failed Uriah. David had failed Bathsheba. David had failed his family, his children. David had failed the Lord most of all. And so David comes to the Lord, and what does he appeal to? God's steadfast love. Even with all of this history, David knows what God is like. David knows what God is like. God is a God of unfailing love, unfailing mercy. There's no need to appeal to anything else. There's no need to appeal to, I promised to never do it again. There's no need to appeal to, uh, well, Saul was a worse king than me, God. There's no need to appeal to, well, it wasn't that bad, and this stuff happens, God. No, there's none of that. The only thing David appeals to, to deal with the sin and the regret in his own life, is God's unfailing love and God's unfailing mercy. He is completely focused on God in verses 1 and 2. He says, look at all the things he asks God to do. Isn't this crazy? He sins violently against God, Bathsheba, and Uriah, and he does nothing but ask God for stuff. Look at this. This is crazy. He asks God to blot out my transgressions. How crazy is that? He just says, God, would you just wipe away my sins? And then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Iniquity, of course, is a fancy Old Testament T word for sin. He says, God, wash me of my sin. Cleanse me from my sin. So what he is doing, he's just going to the Lord and saying, I know what you're like. You're, you're a God of steadfast love and mercy. Will you just cleanse me? Will you just wash me? And why does he do that? Number one, he trusts the Lord. But this isn't a blind trust. This is a trust, and he knows what God is like. I know God is a God of steadfast love and mercy. Another guy knew what God was like. God, he knew that God was like this. It drove him nuts. Who is that guy? Jonah. God goes to Jonah. Do you know this guy? If you don't, uh, buy the uh, movie on Prime. It's VeggieTales Jonah. It's good. God goes to Jonah. Hey, would you do me a favor, Jonah? I'd like you to go to the Ninevites. Try it again. I'd like you to go to the Ninevites. Boo. Okay, now we're in. Okay, we're on. Those fish slappers. Um, and why you go to the Ninevites, their sin has come up against me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely destroy them. But would you go tell them that I'm going to destroy them? And what did Jonah do? He hates the Ninevites. He hates the capital of Assyria. These people are terrible. And so certainly he would have been thrilled to skip through Nineveh. You're all going to be destroyed. But what did he do? He, you know the story. He got on a boat. Boats don't go to Nineveh. It's landlocked. 
and he ran from the Lord. Why did he run from the Lord, though? What's the point? He knew God the way David did. No, 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 no. I know, I know, I know what you're like, God. And it drives me nuts. God, if those people ask you for forgiveness, I know what you'll do. What, what are you, what's he going to do? You'll forgive them. And what, in, in Jonah's mind, though, the Ninevites are what? Unforgivable. Unforgivable. Absolutely unforgivable. And he knows that if they show the slightest bit of seeking the Lord for repentance and forgiveness, that this guy drives him nuts. He'll, he'll do it. And lo and behold, what happens? He preaches the, the gospel to the Ninevites. The message was something like this. The Lord's going to destroy you. <clears throat> Better repent. I think it was something like that. And the whole city repented. The whole city. Even the animals. The king wouldn't even let the animals eat. They put sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning, even on the animals. Jonah goes up to a hillside to sit and watch Nineveh get nuked. He was hoping Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. And he said, he got, this guy is crazy. He sat there, and what happened? Nothing. And he knew God forgave him. That's what God, David knew too. David knew that. So when David went to God, he went to him like the Ninevites. See, I know what God's like. But see, the Ninevites didn't know. They said, let's appeal to the Lord. Maybe, just maybe, maybe he will hold, withhold his hand of judgment. They didn't know God very well. If they would have known, they would have known it's a sealed deal. You come to the Lord for forgiveness. What's he going to do? He's going to forgive you. That's what David knew. God does all the work of blotting out your transgressions, washing you, cleansing you. All it takes is a reliance on God. Let's look at his confession, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. One just quick note. Don't have time to spend on it. He didn't get super specific with his sin here. It isn't interesting. He didn't say, I slept with Bathsheba, who was not my wife. I had Uriah murdered by the hand of my general Joab. Because many of us, we have this superstitious notion that we can't specifically list of our, all of our sins. God's not going to hear us. Notice here, David's confession is, I know I'm a sinner and I need your grace. Okay, just pay attention to that. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you might be justified, that you might be blameless. A couple of things about his confession. Number one, it's transparent. He fully understood that what he did was wrong. He recognizes that what he did is wrong, that God is right, that David is not right. He is focused in his confession here on his failure to abide by God's standards, and he, does, he, he admits this without qualification. None of those excuses that we mentioned earlier. He admits that he has violated God's standards, and he does so without qualification. He sees God as both judge for his sin as well as the one who will make sure justice is done for those that David has wronged. So when uh, David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, is he saying he didn't sin against Uriah? No, that's not what he's saying. He recognizes God, the God of justice, will make sure right is done by Uriah. What about Bathsheba? Did David sin against Bathsheba? Oh, yeah. I mean, that one's bad. 
What choice did Bathsheba have? She had no choice. So don't play this game. You don't tell the king no, do you? No, he sinned against Bathsheba. Even if she voluntarily went, we must recognize it was not voluntary. So he sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his wife Abigail. He sinned against his entire kingdom. He sinned against Joab by forcing his hands to murder Uriah. And what David appeals to, to the Lord, is God, you are the God of justice, and you want to ensure justice is done by all the people I have wronged. And this is what he is saying by I have sinned against you. I have sinned against you, God, who is judge of my sin and one who will hold me to account for how I have wronged others. So I appeal to you, the highest judge, for your grace and your mercy. He's not appealing to get out of the consequences of his sin because he certainly didn't. There are things that are going to come. David, uh, God says to David, what you have been done has been done in private and what is going to happen to you will happen in public when his son Absalom does a similar deed against David's concubines much later in his life. What he is saying is, I know that reconciliation has to begin with the Lord and the Lord alone. He is not saying he hasn't wronged others. So his confession is transparent. His confession is without qualification. His effort here is to have reconciliation with God who is the one who is primarily offended. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't dragging his mom into the mud here. What he is saying here is, I have behaved sinfully, and the reality is I am one who was sinful since the beginning. He is agreeing with what the Bible teaches, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have inherited from our, uh, our forefathers our sin nature because of Adam who sinned before us. So he is not taking, putting his responsibility on those who have come before him. He's saying, listen, I am a sinner, and I have behaved consistent with my nature as a sinner. He's not saying this one deed was bad. He's saying, I need to be redeemed from the inside out. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth from the inward being. Look at this last phrase in verse 6. You teach me wisdom in the secret Heart. One writer notes that this phrase, secret heart, is used relatively infrequently in your Old Testament. In fact, most of the time, this phrase is used to describe stopping up a well. So if you had an enemy and he had lots of flocks, one of the things you could do to frustrate your enemy is to put dirt in his wells. So then he wouldn't, he's walking his flocks out into the open country and he comes to the well that he would normally use to water his sheep you have filled that well up you have stopped up the well and what David is saying is listen my heart is like a well and I don't want it stopped up before the Lord I want it dug out that the Lord can plumb the depths of my heart and see it all I want Lord the Lord to have full access to what's going on inside of me I don't want to treat the, treat the Lord the way I would treat an enemy. An enemy, I would stop up his wells and, and keep him on the outside. No, I want the Lord to have full access to what's going on inside of me. And one of the ways that David describes his openness in his repentance through confession is to unstop the wells. This is, Lord, examine every bit. You have full access to the house 
of my heart. There will be no secret places in my heart because I can trust the Lord will offer forgiveness and grace. I depend on him for his mercy to me. There's no negotiation. There is just simply honesty. Lord, look what's going on in my heart. David is saying, listen, I have sinned by committing adultery. Now he's unstopping the well and saying, because I have an adulterous heart. I have sinned by, by, by murdering Uriah, but that's not the primary issue. The primary issue is I have a murderous heart. And the issue is he wants God to examine his inner person and transform it. That's what he is seeking. How could, how could God possibly forgive David? And how could God possibly forgive us for the things that we regret and feel ashamed of? And the answer is this, the power of God's unfailing love. He would forgive the Ninevites, he would forgive David, and he offers his grace and mercy to our hearts. And what David is calling us to do, and the word of God is calling us to do, is unstop our hearts and just let the, let the Lord in. Here's what's going on, Lord. You know the truth of what's going on in my heart, and I need your grace and mercy. Let's look at the rest of the psalm, if you don't mind. And I can tell you do, but we're going to anyway. How could God forgive? First one, because of the power of his unfailing love. Secondly, how could God forgive? It's the glory of restoration. Let me read verses 7 through 19 of Psalm 51. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me, excuse me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Verses 7, 8, and 9, God removes shame, God removes guilt, God is removing any barrier to relationship with God. Any barrier of David having relationship to God is, is gone. Look how he describes what he is seeking from the Lord. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Hyssop is a plant, and they would bunch it up and tie it off and it functioned kind of like a paintbrush. And it would dip in water or sometimes a mixture of water and blood or sometimes just blood and it would be flicked onto things as a way of ceremonially cleansing them. When the tabernacle was first built, uh, they used the hyssop to sort of scatter water and blood as a way of setting aside these to be used wholly by the Lord. And what David is saying is, do that to me. Make me clean with your hyssop. And this is him saying, I want God, I want you personally to remove any barrier to sinful uncleanness that I would have full access and relationship to you, O Lord. And the question is, how is it possible 
that God could provide cleansing for sin that is so offensive. Matthew 27, we have just a couple of verses. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Jesus is on the cross, and here's what it says. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is happening here is the conclusion of what we see at verse, in verse 9 of Psalm 51. David says, God, hide your face from my sins. How is it possible for God to hide his face from our sin? And the answer is this. Jesus received reproach from God. Jesus, God in the flesh, received reproach of God the Father. So in a sense, we have God turning his judgment unto Christ so that he can turn his face toward us in forgiveness. So how is it possible for God to turn his face away from, his sin, from our sin and instead to turn his face toward us in reconciliation? And the answer is because he turned from Christ and gave the reproach to Christ that should have been done to us. David knew this is what God was like. David knew that God would always make a way for us to go from, from condemned to redeemed, and God did just that through Jesus, the Son of God. He turns his face from Jesus so he can turn his face toward us when we trust him. God's restoration, though, is not merely a changed way of living. It's a changed heart. Look at verse 10. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God's restoration for us is a changed heart. See, repentance is this. I have sinned, and I want to turn from my sin, and I want to turn to God, and I want to turn to God in such a way that I leave my sin behind me. And so we say, Lord, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want this this habit, this evil to be a part of my life anymore, so I turn to God and hope that he will forgive me, which he does, and that I no longer sin. But if you're like many of us, we say, the idea of not sinning anymore seems pretty hard. You know, uh, you know the idea of turning away from this sin and have, being in my past seems like a heavy lift, a very difficult thing to do. What God wants to do is change our hearts. He wants us to be the kind of people that will turn away from sin and, and turn to him. Uh, let's look at a verse uh, in Romans. Romans 2, 28 says this. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul here in the book of Romans is comparing, comparing how Jews related with God to how all people relate with God. The Jews thought, you know, if a Jewish man was circumcised, he's part of the people of God. And Paul is saying, no, you can be circumcised and not a Jew because the issue is what's going on in your heart. And Paul said the way to be uh, whole before God is to be someone who has a heart set aside for God himself, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, the question is what's going on in the heart. And he's just echoing what Moses said in Deuteronomy and, and Jeremiah said as well. Knowing God is a matter of the heart. So if we are going to turn from sin and turn to God for restoration, 
The primary issue is, do I want my heart changed to be seeking the Lord instead of seeking sin? I I only say this, well, number one, because the Bible says it, but secondly, because of this. It's much easier just to say, well, I'm going to try to be less sinful. But now what the Bible is saying, no, 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 let's talk about what's going on inside. Let's, Let's talk about the heart, the motives of the heart. Do you just want to say no to naughty things, or do you want to have a heart that seeks the Lord and the Lord alone? And David, he doesn't merely want to no longer have adulterous affairs. I mean, obviously. He he doesn't merely want to say no to murdering good friends of his. I mean, you certainly would hope that would be a part of the deal. But what he wants is a different kind of heart, a heart that won't take him down that path any longer. And that's what he's praying for in Psalm 51. Okay, last couple of verses. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 51. David says this, I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. I want to caution you here. David is not making a deal with God. He is not bargaining with God. He is not saying, God, if you forgive me, I'll tell other people how forgiving you are. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he recognizes how God works, And he says, you know what? My relationship with God has provided me the means to be able to relate with others in such a way that I can call them to also relate with God in the same way. So this is the problem. Many of us think the best way to be a good Christian and help other people be a good Christian is to be the fanciest, fanciest pants Christian ever. I don't know what a fancy pants Christian is. But you don't do any of the really bad stuff. You don't drink. Uh, that's old school. So you don't drink cheap liquor. <laughs> you only buy good wine. Organic. Vegan wine. I don't know if there's such a thing. You only go to the movies if it's advertised on your Facebook feed from Christian sources. We don't read our Bibles, but we'll go watch The Chosen all day every day. No, that's getting real. I'm sorry. Was that too close to home? <laughs> Sorry about that. That's terrible. Still my opinion, but anyway. um, I don't say any of the naughty words. I drive under the speed limit. If I look at somebody longfully, even though I'm married, I only do so for a very brief period of time. And so what we think is the way in which we're going to encourage people to know the Lord is if we can show them how good we are at it. That's what we think. We want people to know Jesus because we are amazing at following Jesus. Guess what? Doesn't work that way. Because someone who knows Jesus, why do we know Jesus? Because we're a sinner who needed to be forgiveness, forgiven, and David understood that. David understood what it meant to go from condemned to forgiven. And he knew there was a whole bunch of people in his kingdom who needed to know what it was like to go from condemned to forgiven. So what was he going to do as his means to draw people to forgiveness? This says right here, I will teach transgressors your ways. So what's he going to have to do to teach a transgressor his ways? He's going to sit down with little Moses, because probably lots of people named their kids after Moses, would be my guess, right? So he sits down with little Moses, and he's going to say, hey, little Moses, I want to tell you a little something about what it means to follow the Lord, and let me start with telling you about the time I committed adultery and killed a guy. 
And the only reason I can sit here and tell you about that time is because God loves sinners like me. See, we want to impress people with how much we don't need a Savior. David understood the way you reach sinners is by telling them how much you need a Savior. And the more Christians act like they don't need Jesus, the more we convince the people around us they don't need Jesus. And David said, no, I got a better plan. I know exactly how much I need God's reconciliation, and I'm going to tell everybody I run into how much God loves people. And if he can love an adulterous murderer like me, then he can love an adulterous murderer like you. And that's how David was going to tell people about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the gospel changed his heart. The gospel brought him to restoration. In fact, he wasn't going to be very religious. This is the psalm just prior. Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. This is not a psalm of David. This is a psalm of Asaph. Here's what Psalm 50, verse 7 says. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. See, these are people who wanted to challenge the the people of Israel to live for God. Say, listen, the way good people live for God is they give lots of offerings and they they show up to temple worship and and they make sure they do all the stuff they're supposed to do. That way they can live however they want. And God is saying, you're offering me bulls that are mine already. I don't need another bull. I don't need another offering. I don't need another donation. I don't need another person attending temple service. I don't need any of this. What does God want? David understood. God wants hearts that are set on the Lord. Hearts that yearn for the Lord and trust God because of God's unfailing and God's steadfast love. How could God forgive me? Number one, because God's love never fails. I don't care what you did. I don't care when you did it. God's love never fails. God's love never fails. How could God forgive me? Because there is the glory of being restored to the Lord, and that's what the Lord wants, just like he did with David. Restored him to full relationship because David trusted his steadfast love. Let me just give you a couple of things to think about before we head out to celebrate Memorial Day weekend, unless you already started. Yeah, all of these are annoying, so we may as well just jump in. Is there something in your life that you feel God holds against you? Is there something in your life, you think through your life, and you think, yeah, I love Jesus, and I trust him, and, and you know, I know the whole thing. I prayed the prayer, I did the dance, whatever it might have been. But nonetheless, in the back of my mind, I, I, I still feel like he holds it against me. That's why he doesn't answer prayer. That's why I didn't get that job. This is why I'm sick. This is why the lights are always red. Um, This is why I got pulled over. I don't know, whatever it is. So I feel like God is holding something against me. When we look at the scripture, we need to understand our issue there is not thinking our sin is too bad. Because really, for the most part, we we underrepresent the severity of our sin. 
For 100% of the time, we don't understand how sin, bad our sin actually is. The, the primary error we're making in that moment is not misunderstanding how severe our sin is. The problem is, the problem is we have failed to see how much God loves. That's the problem we're having there. It's not that our sin isn't as bad as we think it is. The problem is, the problem is we think God's love is mostly steadfast. It's not steadfast enough, though, for my sin. If you had the ability to out-sin God's steadfast love, that means you are more powerful than God, and you're not. We undervalue the value of God's steadfast love. God's love never fails. I don't know how to say it different. God's love never fails. And some of you are saying, you don't know what I did. Number one, I probably do. I mean, for the most part. I mean, people aren't as originally as original as we like to think. We're, we're all sinning in many of the same ways. And, and, and what I am saying is you trust your sin is bad more than you trust what the Bible says about God's love. Here's what we need to understand about God. God's nature is not a nature where he accuses. Now, God will always tell you the truth. God will always tell you the truth about your life. But the accuser is the one lying to you. See, God will tell you the truth about your life to provide you the path that leads to reconciliation. That's what God does. Here's where you're at. Here's where we get, and we're back together because you trust my unfailing love. That's God telling you the truth with the goal of reconciliation. The accuser, the enemy, the devil, all he wants to do is accuse you and God. He says, you are really bad, and God's a jerk. And so you guys will never get together. That's the accuser. And who do we generally believe? Isn't this incredible? We believe that guy. We're convinced God has something against me. He doesn't. The accuser has told you, you're really bad and God's a jerk. The Bible tells you what? You're really bad. It agrees with you there. But what? God's love never fails. I'm just asking you for this one time. Believe your Bible and not the devil. The Bible says his steadfast love never fails. Okay, next one. Um, I, I'm going to try and annoy a different group of people. Um, God's plans are bigger than well-behaved Christians. Oh, thank the Lord. Isn't that? God's plans are bigger than well-behaved Christian, Christians. I hate to tell you this. Anybody can be well-behaved if given the right motivation. Anybody. You do not have to be a Christian to not say bad words. You do not have to be a Christian to stay sober. You do not have to be a Christian to stay married to your spouse. You do not have to be a Christian to not commit adultery. Christians in our arrogance think we have the corner on living life correctly. God is not looking for well-behaved Christians. You recognize this, right? What's God looking for? A changed heart. A heart that seeks the Lord. Well-behaved people who do not have a heart for the Lord do not go to heaven. Unless you want to argue with me about that good behavior gets you into heaven. Does good behavior get you into heaven? No. What gets you into heaven? A new heart. A heart that seeks the, the things of the Lord. The question we need to ask ourselves as Christians, do I just want to be really good at being well-behaved? Or do I want a heart that is like my Savior Jesus? Do I want my motivations changed? 
Do I want Jesus to renew in me a heart that yearns for the things of the Lord, not merely meeting expectations of the people in my particular social circle? And the reason we don't like this is because we can control to some degree our behavior. If there's something I struggle with in sin, I can try and eliminate opportunities to do that. I can bring people in my life to hold me accountable. But how do I change what I think about? How do I change what motivates me? How do I change what I love? How do you do that? The answer is you can't. That requires trusting Jesus to change you. That requires trusting the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart. That means reading your word, not just because the pastor told you you're supposed to read your Bible and not watch the chosen. You can watch the chosen. Just also read your Bible. I'm going to read my Bible and pray, Lord, I need your Holy Spirit to change me. I'm coming to my, to my scripture desperate for God to change a heart that just is so stubborn. God's plans are bigger than just being well-behaved. He wants our hearts to be made like Christ. Let's end with this. You're welcome. God's love never fails, but our sin is real and our sin is big. So I just want to give you a moment. Seth gave us a moment earlier, but just to touch on this for a moment because this might raise up in our hearts things that are going on. All of us have things that are going on in our life, even right now, real time, habits, behaviors, things that we slip into, we know are wrong and we don't like them. That We wish they weren't a part of our life. And having gone through this psalm, knowing a little bit what God is like, knowing a little bit about the realities of heart, it would be uh, reckless to not leave this moment and give each of us an opportunity in the quietness of our own hearts for a few minutes to say, Lord, renew a right heart in me. Cleanse me. It would be a joy in, in my life and it would be a joy in your life if we could leave this room this morning having experienced anew that refreshment that comes from recognizing God has cleansed me. I am whiter than snow in Christ. But more than that, there might be some of us here who have never put our faith in Christ and we don't know what it feels like to live a life having God atone for and pay for our shame, our regret, our sin. And I want you in these moments to consider the path that Jesus provides to life in God is through faith. It's not getting better. It's not getting cleaner. It's not being well-behaved. It's not avoiding the seven deadly sins. It is simply trusting Jesus to give you a clean heart. And this is the moment that you have been afforded by God to say, I, I need my heart changed. I need life in Christ because I can't live this way anymore. So let's take a few minutes. I'm going to begin with prayer. And then I'm just going to shut up for a while. I know that's surprising that that could happen. And I want to allow you a few moments just in the quietness to think, to pray, and seek the Lord as David did in Psalm 51. God, I ask in these moments as we come before you that you would give us hearts convicted by your Holy Spirit of the sin that you know is going on in our lives. We are grateful, God, that your word tells us we can come to you because your love never fails. So God, as your people pause now for these few moments, I would ask God that you would hear our prayer according to your mercy and steadfast love and you would cleanse us of our sin. And I would pray, God, as we do this, that there would be those in this room who know they don't have a relationship with you through Jesus and they would trust Jesus in these moments.